Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Here in the Bay Area, we have tens of thousands of Afghan neighbors, most prominently in and around Fremont. Many of them have family and friends caught in the chaos of Kabul, and these last few days have been filled with anxiety and fear. We want you to hear their voices. So we're going to be talking with members of the Afghan community throughout the hour. Whatever you think about the war America fought in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, whatever you think of the decision to pull out, there are thousands of Afghan people who threw in with the United States. They worked alongside our military, our journalists, our NGOs, and now they fear for their safety with the Taliban in control of the country. And their families here in the Bay Area are worried too. That's next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The scenes from Kabul have been very, very hard to watch. The parents holding on to their children, the people holding on to the plane, the shock and the trauma and the fear. But whatever Americans without family in or connection to Afghanistan are going through, our neighbors with close ties to that country are bearing a different set of burdens. And maybe they also have different ways of seeing and understanding what's happened over the last few weeks. So I want to just immediately introduce our panel. Khaled Hosseini, you probably know as the author of The Kite Runner and A Thousand Splendid Sons. His most recent novel is The Ma- And the Mountains Echoed. But he's also worked on refugee issues. He's the former Goodwill Envoy to the United Nations Refugee Agency and founder of the Khaled Hosseini Foundation. Welcome. Thank you. I'm actually a current Goodwill ambassador. Oh, cur- current Goodwill. Thank you very much uh, for that. We also have Fahim Pirzada. Uh, he's the assistant director of the Ulysses Postdoctoral Refugee Health Research Training Program at UC Davis Medical School. Dr. Pirzada formerly worked at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul and came to the U.S. on a special immigrant visa. Welcome. Thank you so much, Alexis. Uh, yeah. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And Razia Iqbal is an Afghan-American psychologist who's worked with the Afghan refugee community. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for being with us. Halet Hosseini, you said in a recent interview with the New York Times, if you look up stories about Afghanistan, it's always about violence, it's about displacement, it's about the drug trade, it's about the Taliban, it's about U.S. initiatives. There's precious little about the Afghan people themselves. So before we get into the current situation, I just want to hand the mic to you to tell us about the Afghan people and the Afghanistan that we don't hear about. 
thanks for the opportunity. It's good to be back on KQED. Thank you for the reporting that you do. You're an institution in the Bay Area, and I appreciate you. I listen to you all the time. Thank you. Um, you know, and I think uh, Mr. Prezada and Ms. Iqbal will echo this, but as Afghan-Americans, one of the things that is the most frustrating to us is all stories about Afghanistan tend to be centering around the Taliban, about terrorism, about the drug war, about the war. And the fact is Afghanistan is just such a beautiful country. It's a lovely country. It has a beautiful people. It has a rich heritage, a rich history. Everyone who goes to Afghanistan never, ever forgets it. There's something about that country that is deeply resonant with people who visit it and certainly with people who have any kind of uh, personal ties to it like I and, my, and your other guests do. It's a beautiful country with a beautiful people that are hospitable, that are humble. There's this poetry in the souls of the people and all of this is lost, unfortunately, in the greater narrative of war and terrorism and displacement and the things that your listeners are probably very familiar with. Hello, Hosseini, could you just give me just a small memory of Afghanistan that has nothing to do with the current situation? I grew up there in Kabul in the 1970s. This was a time when the country was living in uh, peaceful anonymity. Um, It was a time of uh, slow uh, progress, a time when women had an active part in society. I had uh, aunts uh, who worked for the government, who were lawyers, who were literature professors at the university. My mother uh, was a vice principal at one of the largest high schools for girls. It was a time of, of, of personal freedoms, um, of a thriving cultural scene. I have these surreal memories when I look at the images of, of the city today of uh, hippies lounging in tea houses. Um, it was a very, very, very different time and, and a time that I tried to recreate to, to some extent in the, the first uh, 100 pages or so of, of the Kite Runner. Yeah. Fahim Pirzada, you have family in Kabul right now. How, how are they doing? Well, when I'm asked this question, I really get emotional because uh, the situation in Afghanistan with most families are the same that usually uh, broadcasted in media. Chaotic, tension, tense, unknown future in a lot of anxiety. Nobody knows what is going to happen next. So it is happening the same way with my family. And uh, basically they are locked down at home, um, trying to understand the situation to see how safe it is to go out, uh, whether to return to work, whether to return to school, or just to stay in and see what is going to happen. Unfortunately, it is not a promising uh, situation and there is uh, there is a lot of questions uh, that everyone has in mind and and we don't have anyone to answer that we uh, we have a big uh, gap right now in and in, in political uh, political air and in social air and economic and everywhere is something that we don't know what is going to happen. I hope we have answers to these questions very soon. I hope we have some stability. I hope we have the 
the current situation is not something um, that anyone um, thought of it for last, like let's say two decades. Um, so it happened all, all of a sudden. And I hope this situation improved before more lives are lost yeah. and before more tragedy we see. I hope that is not happening there. Yeah. Many of the people who have come to the United States and also who would like to come to the United States who have you know, some of the 18,000 applications to the special immigrant visa program that are still pending, um, they're, they're counting on the U.S. bureaucracy to process these applications before they can come here. You experienced that process in, in coming to the U.S. What, what was it like? When I applied, uh, first of all, uh, the program started in 2000, early 2008 or late 2007, and then ex- expanded in 2010 to everyone who worked with the U.S. government in Afghanistan. For me, it took two years to come to the decision to leave my um, family because in Afghan culture, uh, it's not only your immediate family, it is your sibling, parents, and whoever lives with you in your home back in Afghanistan, and they are dependent of you. So they are also counted family members. I knew because I was the U.S. government employee in the past, so I knew the rule, and I said, okay, how can I just grab my wife and three children and leave my parents and siblings at, the, at risk mm-hmm. of of me being a former U.S. government employee in Afghanistan. So two years to make that decision, okay, Fahim, it is not safe for you to stay there. There's a question of not your safety, but the future uh, of your children. So I made that decision in two years of thinking and discussing with friends. And then of course, parents also uh, encouraged me to take that uh, step. So it told me, a year to get all these things processed. For me, the question is that working with US government in Afghanistan is not an easy process to get hired because mm-hmm. you need to go through a certain background check, screening and everything. And you also get biometrics there. So the question is that when, I, when we work for the US government under federal, US federal law there, then why when we apply for immigration status, it takes so long, so long to wait to get that immigrant while we have all our data, background, everything already vetted with the government. So the question of this bureaucracy or the question of this paperwork is something that really most people don't know how are these performed and why it takes so much long. Mm-hmm. And so that is a that's a concerning thing. I hope there is some reforms with the process so people can get expedited. I understand there will be more people traveling with that uh, U.S. government employee in Afghanistan, like family members, and may, they may need vetting. But considering the situation in Afghanistan, children there, and also women, they do not have much opportunity. So they're, I mean, checking their background, like my wife in Afghanistan, after the graduation from high school, unfortunately did not have the opportunity to 
um, advance in her education or get employment there. So basically, she was like, uh, like many, many other Afghan women. Uh, the system couldn't really see her. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, the system see because she did not have much of going on in her. So vetting her background should not take uh, a year or two. Mm-hmm. And I had some of my colleagues there. It took them four years to get vetted. Four years. So it's kind of like a, itself, the process is very risky for yeah. people to stay and wait and wait while the risk and threat is going on for them in, in Afghanistan. Razia Iqbal, the international community as well as uh, Fahim have been calling attention to women and girls as a, a group of particular concern. Um, with new arrivals to the U.S., um, what are some of the issues that you have seen for women who get on the ground here in the U.S.? Some of the issues that we see um, that uh, Dr. Prasada beautifully shared was that, um, you know, women come here and, you know, whether they have little or no education, um, they have a responsibility, especially if they have children. So they, for them, it's um, assimilation, acculturation, um, learning how to navigate the new world of the U.S., possibly learning to uh, take English classes um, to learn the native language. Um, I think that because women come from that society currently where they've been deprived and not allowed to uh, you know, have an education or have a voice, uh, it's quite shocking for them to come to the U.S. and feel like they have uh, some sort of um, you know, uh, ability to be able to learn an English language and uh, possibly work and uh, care for their family the way that they had hoped that they were able to do back home in Afghanistan. Yeah. We're talking about the Afghan community in Northern California and the reaction and the response to the escalating crisis in Afghanistan with Khaled Hosseini, obviously author of The Kite Runner and A Thousand Planted Sons, Fahim Pirzada, assistant director of the Ulysses Postdoctoral Refugee Health Research Training Program at UC Davis, and Razia Iqbal, an Afghan-American psychologist. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Afghan community here in Northern California, the largest in the U.S., and the reaction and response to the escalating crisis in Afghanistan. We're joined by Khaled Hosseini, who's obviously author of The Kite Runner, Fahim Pirzada, who came to the U.S. on a special immigrant visa and is assistant director of the Ulysses program at UC Davis Medical School, as well as Razia Iqbal in Afghan American psychologist. And we we want to hear from you, especially if you're a member of the Afghan community. What are your reactions to what's happening in in Afghanistan? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Share your story with us. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. 
Razia Iqbal, we were talking with you before the break about the issues that people have sort of coming to the U.S. as as refugees, coming out of very difficult situations within Afghanistan. What type of work do you do with them as a psychologist to, to work through some of the trauma, both from home as well as the new traumas uh, of, of the U.S.? Yeah, some of the work that I do with the Afghan community is predominantly um, wrapped around the trauma that they have uh, endured, unfortunately, in their native country, and then also helping them assimilate and acculturate to their new environment. Um, um, as you know, uh, mental health is a global crisis, um, in particular with the refugee uh, immigrant community, it's even more so. Um, you know, I think a lot of uh, the, the Afghan community um, they continue to feel, I mean, just watching this horrific scenes um, uh, through the media um, and reading about what's going on in Afghanistan, um, a lot of people feel uh, survivor's guilt, um, which is feelings of guilt or responsibility for surviving, um, which, you know, leads to sadness, helplessness, numbness, disconnection, lack of motivation, depression. Um, some of the traumas that I continue to work with them are you know, just intrusive, very intrusive, distressing memories that they have, which I think is uh, current now, just for them to watch everything that's going on uh, is very re-traumatizing for them. Um, you know, reliving traumatic events um, of their past, uh, which can see, can, can see, you can see, which will be exhibited in signs of being irritable, anxious, depressed, um, you know, having feelings of fear, uncertainty, anger, anxiety, sadness, and even rage, uh, just outrage and rage over what is going on and feeling helpless and hopeless in the moment. Mm-hmm. Halet Husseini, we know that the Afghan community is not a monolithic block of people and that people from different parts of the country or came to the U.S. at different times may see things differently. Do you see meaningful differences in the people you know in how they're reacting to the last few weeks of news? Look, virtually... Every fellow Afghan I've spoken to, whether it be in the United States or by email in Afghanistan, feels the same way. They're horrified by what's happened. They're disappointed and they feel betrayed and abandoned. The Afghan people deserve better than this. 20 years of war, 20 years, tens of thousands of Afghan lives have been lost, schools destroyed, children killed, and our American partners left in the middle of the night and left millions of fellow Afghans, their people that they called their partners, at the mercy of what is known to be a ruthless and brutal regime that has been systematically terrorizing and brutalizing the Afghan people for the last 20 years. So there's great sense of fear, there's great anxiety, and me and my fellow Afghans here in America and, and in Europe and elsewhere feel great sense of sympathy, empathy, and solidarity with our fellow Afghans who are trapped in Afghanistan and felt the unenviable, unenviable task of living under the rule of the Taliban. Yeah. What do you think was the answer? Should the U.S. have just committed to staying indefinitely? We have tens of thousands of troops in places we haven't been to in 70 years. We had 2,500 people in Afghanistan, 2,500 troops. Most of the fighting was done by the Afghan troops. The US was providing logistical support and air support. I guess the calculus is 
Was that too high of a cost? Or was the cost higher given what we've done in the last few days? Evacuation from Afghanistan was a disaster. And the results of that have clearly been evident immediately. We've seen all of us those horrible pictures of people chasing the airplane that speaks to the despair and the terror of the Afghan people facing the Taliban. But the long-term consequences of the withdrawal from Afghanistan will be known in the coming months and years. And I personally believe that the cost will be higher than if we had maintained a small presence in Afghanistan. The situation was far from ideal. And I think your my fellow Afghans on the panel can agree that you know, there was the situation in Afghanistan was far from ideal the last 20 years. There were many missteps and miscalculations and, and tragedies and hopes that had been punctured. But at least the Taliban flag wasn't flying over every major Afghan city. And now the possibility that millions of Afghans will suffer, that Afghanistan will once again experience mass displacement is very real. We're already seeing since the beginning of this year over half a million Afghans have been displaced by violence internally inside the country. We're seeing sporadic movement across the borders into Iran and Pakistan, but the situation is changing on the ground day by day, if not hour by hour. Is it entirely possible that we will see a large influx of people looking for international protection across those borders? And the world, the United States particularly, but the world has to be ready and express solidarity with those Afghans who need international, international protection. Mm -hmm. And I call on the US, I call on the international community to keep their borders open and to welcome Afghan refugees. It's the least that we can do for them. Yeah. Fahim Pirzada, you know, the presentation that you gave on Afghan refugee resettlement experience, I mean, you noted that foreign armed presence under any name was never welcomed in Afghanistan throughout its history. And you worked with the U.S. government directly in Kabul, um, and you saw the challenges of a U.S.-backed government. Is there how how should this have worked uh, if you could have changed the nature of the engagement that the U.S. had, or was it in some ways doomed because of just the the foreign armed presence? Alexis, uh, before answering that question, I have been asked by many uh, American citizens, uh, my fellow Americans here in the United States, uh, when um, they knew that I was from Afghanistan. So they, the question they came said, was it a good decision for the US to get involved in Afghanistan? As a person, as an Afghan um, who, was born in Afghanistan, uh, raised in, uh, in war, and left 37 of his very, uh, I mean, say, precious time and life under war violence and everything. So for me and my generation, I would say it was not a mistake for the US because we, we were suffering a lot because of the civil war and the only hope the only hope after God was to have an international involvement in Afghanistan to take Afghans and, uh, uh, I mean, 
women and children out of what was going on in Afghanistan, which was civil war in nineties. So that was a good, I see that as a good decision for uh, the American government helping Afghanistan in nineties. But later there were some policy uh, flaws. Things were not very well analyzed. Things were not very well carried out. Um, of course, there is always improvement in terms of policies. So at uh, the beginning, things were moving in a very good directions, especially uh, after the embassy reopened, the American embassy reopened in, a, in Kabul after 17 years. I was one of the first US embassy employees hired and I was doing five tasks at the same time uh, when being uh, uh, hired there. So it was, it was very nice feeling to work for the country and rebuild the institutions, the parliament, the uh, economic institutions and, and, and working day and night. My shift was starting at 7 a.m. and I was going home at 11 p.m. And I had that energy, that uh, motivation to work for the country and start building, rebuilding everything. But later, as we were moving forward, there was like because of the weak government in Afghanistan, the government, the central government got weakened and weakened and weakened and distance from people. And we did not take steps to uh, built a very uh, cent uh, strong centralized uh, government there. So the problem escalated. And again, the policies were not responding to, uh, to that escalating situation. So we could have done better internationally. I'm not taking blame on only one country. I mean, the world who were involved in Afghanistan, they were all uh, had um, a part in, in Afghanistan, the local government. So. Uh, to be honest, uh, everyone failed to to prevent the situation that we are facing now. So we could definitely um, do better, yeah. which we couldn't. Razia Iqbal, as you have seen this extremely long engagement um, of, of the U.S. in Afghanistan, and you've seen different groups of people come through uh, through the different sort of eras of of this war. Have you noticed major differences in the types of folks who've come to settle here in the Bay Area through time? Well, most definitely. Um, you know, when I immigrated as a young child, I, I left Afghanistan at the age of three. Um, and we had to go to Pakistan for a few years to get sponsored to arrive uh, to California, in particular Southern California. Um, and, and back then, you know, um, you'd see Afghans who, um, you know, uh, didn't speak the language, kind of was very lost, didn't, there was no sense of community, uh, because there wasn't any Afghans at that time um, who uh, immigrated um, as refugees. And now when you see Afghans uh, come to the U.S., uh, you know, they, they have a uh, better grasp of the English language because they've uh, you know, just like Mr. Prasada, you know, they speak English quite well. Uh, you know, they have uh, some sort of uh, work history that they can bring on here and, and use um, and utilize. So, you know, uh, throughout since the 80s till now, I mean, you, you see Afghans progress 
And that's predominantly because I think the whole, um, you know, society of Afghanistan changed in that block of 20 plus years. Um, so, so you see more progressive younger Afghans who particularly worked with the US um, have, have better skills um, that they can use here and better language. Yeah. Khaled Hosseini, I've thought a lot about Iranian friends over the past few days, you know, people and their families who've been largely unable to go to Iran, even people you know, who were born here, grew up speaking Farsi, they're large Iranian families, and they, they've never been able to go to the place where their parents were born or where their families are from. Do you worry with this latest turn of events that you'll never get a chance to return? I wish you wouldn't ask that, but I've, only because I've been thinking about that myself. I've had a chance to go back to my birthplace a number of times since 2001. And, you know, I have a deep emotional connection to that country. I haven't lived there since 1976, but I spent my formative years there. I care deeply about Afghan people, about the country and about what happens to it in the coming years. So the idea that I'll never be able to go back there is, um, is deeply unpleasant to me. And I certainly hope that's not the case. Yeah. A lot of that will depend on what the Taliban plan for Afghanistan in the coming days. They certainly have been saying the right things on television with the spotlight on them with the world listening and watching and scrutinizing every word they're saying. They're promising that they're going to respect human lives, that they're going to you know, allow women to um, be more active than in the 1990s, although they're very careful to qualify that by saying that women will have to um, function within the confines of Islamic law. And to me, that's, uh, that leaves it uh, awfully open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are they going to do by personal freedoms and human rights and freedom of press? And those are all the things that will determine whether I can safely go back to yeah. Afghanistan or not. I have always dreamed of taking my children there and showing them the house where I lived and showing them the city where I was born, where I learned to walk and talk and made my first friends. And I hope that becomes a reality. But frankly, right now, that prospect um, looks remote. Yeah. And uh, the, the present right now looks rather grim. I wish I could offer um, a more hopeful outlook. But right now I feel the situation in Afghanistan is very bleak. I haven't felt this grim about Afghanistan since the mid-90s when it was mired in civil war, where there was absolutely no chance I could return to Afghanistan. So hopefully the Taliban have learned some lessons in the last 20 years. I hope they have. I write about this in the Washington Post, an op-ed that will be published shortly, okay. where I say that I hope they have learned some lessons in the last 20 years, that moderation, that a more lenient approach, a more inclusive approach is not only to the benefit of the Afghan people, but also to their own viability, their own durability, their own credibility as a player in the region. And it behooves them to bring all sectors of the Afghan society, particularly women into the fold and co-opt their resilience, their courage, their know-how, their education into hopefully steering the country into a more positive and more prosperous direction. Those are the things that will determine whether I can return to Afghanistan or not. 
We're talking about the Afghan community in Northern California and their reaction and response to the escalating crisis in Afghanistan. You just heard Khaled Hosseini, author of The Kite Runner, A Thousand Splendid Sons, and The Mountains Echoed, and he's also the goodwill envoy to the United Nations Refugee Agency and founder of the Khaled Hosseini Foundation. We also have Farim Pirzada, assistant director of the Ulysses Program, which helps with the mental health of refugees at the UC Davis Medical School. And he previously worked at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. We've also been joined by Razia Iqbal, an Afghan-American psychologist who's worked with the Afghan refugee community. And we really do also want to hear your stories. We're going to go to the phones when we get back from the break. Are you a member of the Afghan community? What are your reactions to what's happening in Afghanistan Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I wanted to pass along a compliment for... Halet Hosseini about his writing from Douglas. Douglas writes, Halet Hosseini's beautiful portrayals of Afghanistan have created empathy for the people and the country beyond as a location of conflict and strife. As I looked at the throngs piling onto airplanes, I have no doubt that my ability to view them in more human terms is partially a result of Mr. Hosseini's telling their stories, including their connections to the Bay Area. I can still conjure the images in the closing pages of the kite runner of the main character starting the next chapter of his life at Golden Gate Park. And I wish for new chapters for today's refugees. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we will be back with more on Afghanistan after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Afghan community here in Northern California, which is the largest in the nation, and their reaction and response to the escalating crisis in Afghanistan. We have Khaled Hosseini, author of The Kite Runner, among other books, Fahim Pirzada, who, as the assistant director of a program to help the mental health of refugees at UC Davis, and Razia Iqbal, an Afghan-American psychologist. I'd like to add Hussein from San Francisco into our conversation. Welcome to the show. Thanks for calling. Thanks for taking my call. Um, before 9-11, Afghanistan was a fairly self-sufficient country. 90% of domestic products was sufficient for the country. Right now, it's just the opposite. 10% domestic products and 90% is from foreign aid. No one is talking about the self-sufficiency of the country and the people. Everyone is being very nostalgic right now. I'm talking about, you know, wistful and the homesick and all that, which is very emotional. You know, wrapping ourselves around the flag 
national anthem and whose picture is going to be on the banknote. These things are not going to feed anybody. Right now, the food comes from Pakistan, just the wheat, bread, very basic. Electricity from Tajikistan and clothing, even the hijab that they're insisting on from China. When are we going to start talking about making this country self-sufficient? Now the United States is leaving, the rest of these NATO nations is going to leave, that that help is going to be reduced. What are we going to do to substitute for the loss of all this foreign aid that's going to stop? Thank you very much for that comment, Hussein. And of course, the U.S. has also taken action to freeze the assets of the Afghan government, which might also complicate the process of rebuilding internal state capacity and, and infrastructure. Khaled Hosseini, do you want to address that uh, question quickly before we bring in some more conversation about local refugee services? Well, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, it's been the dream of all of us um, that Afghanistan will become a self-sufficient nation that will have a thriving industry and will be able to rely on its own uh, exports to support its people. But right now, what's really happening in Afghanistan is far more uh, pressing in terms of security, in terms of the well-being people. I think that is a certainly a goal, for, but right now it's, I think, absolutely essential. And I repeat this, it's absolutely essential for the U.S. and for the U.S.'s partners to exert diplomatic pressure, pressure on the Taliban to not abuse the Afghan people as they did in the 1990s, to not use violence as a punitive tool against Afghan citizens, and to respect the essential human rights and the freedoms of all sectors of Afghan society, particularly women and girls. If the Taliban fail to do this, Afghanistan will never become economically sufficient. If the Taliban once again subjugate 50% of the population and force them to stay at home and deprive them of healthcare, of education, of, of a, their, their ability to work and deprive the nation of the incalculable contributions that women can make to that society, well, Afghanistan will never become economically sufficient. So it's absolutely essential that the international community put diplomatic pressure on the Taliban to respect the human rights of all Afghans. Thank you for that. I want to add Mimi from San Jose into our conversation. Welcome to the show, Mimi. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to send my heart and my prayers out to the Afghan community and the Afghan refugees. I just want to mention that my dad was a prisoner of war for the Vietnamese um, for, during the Vietnamese War, and um, the, there was a speaker yesterday that the New York Times journalist that mentioned uh, similarities between the current situation in Afghan and the fall of Saigon in 1975. And I wanted to just mention that um, my dad went through it. He struggled with it. He relives the stories and um, the pain that he has suffered during the Vietnam War with us 
all the time and um, it's real and it hurts and it's painful and I just I can't imagine all the different um, all the pain and suffering that the Afghan people are feeling right now especially the refugees that are being displaced because we were displaced and um, you know a lot of people I know uh, tried to escape on boats were either um, like uh, stranded or drowned or and then and then I saw pictures of a you know the, an, an Afghan plane that came that like flew out and then somebody just fell on just mm-hmm. fell down and it just kind of relives all these stories back during the Vietnam War and I just I just feel so horrible and I really wish the the US would do more for the Afghan refugees now and um you know with stories as being a woman here um I I have to say like I think I I succeeded in like the American dream you know I um I work in a in, in a big um, uh, high tech company, and I'm doing well, supporting my family. I'm able to to both work and live um, comfortably here in the U.S. And I really hope that that opportunity um, is extended to the Afghan community, especially to the women and children and the girls that um, really need it right now. Because I just I feel it in my heart for you guys, and I am I'm just uh, it's it's so hard to bear right now for you. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you for that. I I want to bring in Fauzia Azizi, who's the Director of Refugee Services at Jewish Family and Community Services um, East Bay. Welcome to the show, Fauzia. Thank you for having me. Uh, Fauzia, you just heard uh, Caller Mimi, I think, reflecting the hearts of a lot of us, especially those of us who have immigrant parents uh, or came to this country under uh, difficult circumstances. Um, what are agencies like yours doing to help the Afghan refugees who are coming now? So um, our agency, Jewish Family and Community Services East Bay, has a long history of working with Afghan refugee. And um, for the past few years, majority of our clients has been special immigrant visa holders. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, our agency is kind of like resettlement agency helping them for the 90 days period. And we are taking care of from like uh, airport pickup, securing apartment for them, furnishing the apartment, um, uh, make sure that the hall basic items and everything is being accommodated on those apartments and also connect them with resources, uh, apply for social security cards and uh, connect them with benefits, medical system and uh, assess the families, uh, school age children to be enrolled in schools as well as ESL classes, connect them with unemployment services and providing culture orientations and so many other logistics that comes along. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a complete, a comprehensive case management for 90 days period. Mm. And what do you need from the broader community to to aid you? I mean, is, is are people, too many people getting in touch trying to help and actually making your job harder? Do you need people to donate money? Is it goods? Like what, what is... What would be the way that people can help the most? Um, I mean, uh, we have received a great response from our community, and we really do appreciate that. Of course, those families that are coming, um, they might need a little bit more stability until they get self-sufficient and be able to to have a job and secure employment. Because let's not forget that we are still in the middle of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and securing employment is a little bit challenging at this point. Um, uh, so any help from community in terms of financial support would be greatly appreciated because uh, Bay has one of the uh, highest rent in terms of rent uh, subsidies and housing costs. 
So the financial support will help those families to be able to pay their rent subsidies for two, three months um, to be able to be self-sufficient and also have their supports like car seats, household items, basic household items, hygienes and um, school backpacks and any help. I mean, Chromebooks, um, any help for those families would be greatly appreciated. And we got a great response so far from our community. And I just want to take that opportunity and say thank you so much. We really do appreciate that. Thazia, how many, given the high cost of living here, given that oftentimes refugee settlement sticks people where they can find jobs, like at a meatpacking plant somewhere, how, how many Afghan refugees do we actually expect to come to the to the Bay Area specifically, given that we have this kind of difficulty? We have a great community that people could join that's like large where people could feel comfortable, but we also have this very high cost of living. <clears throat> I mean... Uh, just for this month, I had confirmed 100 individuals to come just for August month. Um, and we are ex- still expecting that that number might increase uh, based on the emergency evacuation. I mean, um, our experience shows that uh, Afghan people are extremely hardworking people. And um, they they become self-sufficient um, faster and quicker. Of course, it's it's for some families, it take longer time. But our experience shows that they are willing to take any entry-level job to be to be able to to uh, uh, cover the cost of their uh, expenses and take care of their families. We had clients that were engineer doctors back home, and when they came here, they started with a very entry-level jobs, and later on they moved on to the career jobs or jobs that was better fit for them career-wise. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but uh, they, our experience shows that they are, um, they are really working hard to be self-sufficient. Yeah. I want to add Joseph from Oakland into our conversation here. Uh, welcome to the conversation, Joseph. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to just sort of get thoughts and then add a comment about what we're seeing in media and the narrative, and I know Howard writes a lot about narrative, and I've been really fascinated by um, the sophistication of the Taliban's media offensive, um, how it's corralled media within Kabul, how, you know, we're being sort of shown what we want, we need to be shown by them, right, and how much the international media has bought into that. I mean, I think on some level, the greatest trick the Taliban has ever played on us is convincing us that they're not sophisticated, right? And so I just wanted to kind of put that out there and see if anybody had a response to that, because I think right now, one of the struggles we have within Afghanistan, but also in the diaspora in the U.S. and elsewhere, is really taking hold of the narrative, right? And sharing the, the stories of suffering, of pain, of abduction of women, right? Of schools being shut down, and then having those dominate these images that we see of, you know, press conferences and people taking selfies uh, with guns, right? And, and these um, citizens welcoming the Taliban with open arms and cell phones out. Halet yeah. Hosseini, do you want to address that? Um, sure. Look, over the last 20 years, and I'll set the Taliban aside for now, but Afghans, certainly in urban centers within the country, have gone to school. While the Taliban themselves were busy launching rockets at schools and at roads and at Afghan police cadets, young urban professional Afghans went to school to learn how to code. They became software engineers. Uh, They engaged via social media with the outside world 
on 21st century issues like human rights, gender equality, social justice. So technology has been one of the great advances in Afghanistan in the last 20 years. Over 10 million Afghans have access to cell phones. That's not restricted to ordinary Afghans. The Taliban have access to those things as well, mm-hmm. except they have used that technology and they've co-opted it to nefarious purposes. And it's one of the ways that they've been able to make these advances, one of the ways that they've uh, uh, supported their operations in the last 20 years. But the war is over. The Taliban have won. They're in Afghanistan now. And they have a choice. They can go back to the draconian and horrible days of the 90s where they bankrupted the country they terrorized the population and left the country in economic collapse, or they can be more savvy and they can take a step back and say, look, the country that we conquered in 2021 is not the country that we left in 2001. This is a vastly different country. There's enormous potential here. There's millions of young Afghans with know-how and technological savvy and education that can be an enormous source of a partnership for us. Mm-hmm. I hope to think that way. Yeah. In all likelihood, this is wishful thinking on my part. I'd like to add Zabi from San Jose into our conversation. Welcome, thank you for calling. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, sorry. Um, Anyway, uh, I've lived all my life here. Uh, been very emotional last past few days. Sorry about that. But uh, the thing I just want to say is for us here, um, I'm proud. I'm an American Afghan citizen here, and just seeing the people suffering is just too much. Uh, the thing I have for the Taliban, it's very easy to win a war, but to govern is a different story. I've been talking to some people about there right now. They don't have to have anything. Um, you know, their banks are closed. So I hope they change their ways and respect all the women and everybody's rights, all different groups, and so they can live in peace. We have suffered so much in the past 40 years. I myself personally have lived here for 40 years. I haven't suffered as much as the people back there. But uh, my message to them is, we are watching you. We're not going to just listen to your news conferences and all these good talks, but we want to see action on your part. Respect all your people. Respect everyone. Respect the women. And give them the freedom. You can, people can get freedom, but you're not going to take it away. This is not Afghanistan of 90s. People are not going to sit up. So please, I, my message to the Taliban is change your ways. Okay, you're a winner, but it's a different story to govern and feed your people. And my message to the Western world in America is do not give these people any recognition if they are not going to respect human rights, women's rights, and change their ways. You know, this is worse than dictatorship. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Zabi. Thank you for that. Fahim, I want to ask you about your first day in the U.S. and how things have gone for you 
someone who's been in the shoes of people who are coming to the U.S. now? Alexis, when I was uh, coming uh, to United States, I had a friend uh, and a family member who said, because back in Afghanistan, I was one of the established Afghans there. So I had job. I, I mean, uh, before coming to U.S., I was a vice president, CEO of, of, of an, a private company. So I have everything. So I left everything and came. So the gentleman told me, my friend, and said, for him, you will not be a medical doctor anymore. For him, you will not be CEO. You will not be a vice president. You will, you will be nobody. You start from zero and you come. And um, yeah, keeping that in mind, um, and as Afghans or resilient people, um, so I said, okay, but here the sacrifice is something different, um, something else, uh, my children's future uh, safety. So I, I, when I came here, I was just kind of like looking out for opportunity, where to start, how I can be a contributing, yeah. successful U.S. Just citizen. Just a few here. seconds, Fahim. I'm sorry. And that was the motivation, and I started, and I was able to uh, get through and um, and establish here. Yeah. We've been talking about the Afghan community in Northern California and their reaction response to the escalating crisis in Afghanistan. Thank you to Fauzia Azizi, Razia Iqbal, Fahim Pirzada, and Khaled Hosseini. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.